You are listening to Australia's premier podcast dedicated to the world of wine, the Vincast. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the guests who very generously donate their time to be on the show. Uh, it really does take a, a lot to be able to do this podcast, and it does rely on the support of the guests to come and talk about themselves and their story. Uh, and you, the listener, can actually show your appreciation for them by supporting them, um, whether they're, they're selling uh, wines, they're making wines, they're talking about wines, you know, you can get in touch with them, find out how you can purchase some of their product uh, and just let them know that you heard them on the podcast and you really enjoyed their story. So please do, um, you know, use the links that I share on social media and through the website intrepidwino.com uh, and just share the love with the guests. Thanks guys for listening. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Episode 112 of the Vincast, I chat with Michael Breikovich, winemaker for Kumu River and also New Zealand's first master of wine. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and thank you very much for joining me on this week's episode. I'm very excited to to share an episode that I actually recorded a little while ago uh, via Skype, so you'll have to uh, keep that in mind when you're listening. Uh, but uh, as always, uh, I'd love to actually get feedback about the podcast, as I'm sure my guests do as well, uh, and of someone who recently shared a review on on the uh, iTunes page for the Vincast was Taylor, who uh, shared um, that she loved uh, the episode that I recorded with Gilda Puri from Yeringberg. Uh, so please do uh, provide some feedback to myself and also potential listeners of the podcast on iTunes. Give it a five-star rating if you can and leave a review because I, I love hearing from you. So as I mentioned for this week, I, uh, I recorded with someone via Skype a little while ago. Uh, his name is Michael Brykovich, MW. Uh, he was, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, New Zealand's first master of wine, in fact, uh, and uh, is also uh, his family own Kumio River, where he's the winemaker, uh, which is pro- probably you know, New Zealand's finest producer of Chardonnay. Uh, and so we had a chat about uh, the story with Kumio River and, uh, and his personal journey. So I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, stick around till the end so you can find out how to get in touch with us to let us know if you enjoyed it. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Michael, thank you so much for joining me uh, all the way from uh, New Zealand, just outside of Auckland, of course, uh, and welcome on the Vincast podcast. Thanks very much, James. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Michael, I start every episode of my podcast by asking my guest if they can remember the first interaction they had with wine that made them think about it in a, a different way that uh, made them feel more uh, and you know led them on the path towards uh, you know a job in the wine industry. I guess for you it's possibly a little bit different as, as it's a family business, but uh, can you remember the, the earliest interactions you have with wine? Well, we kind of grew up with wine, being around the winery, working from a very early age in the wine cellar, we called it, 
and um, working with my father, who was the winemaker. And so we, I have very early memories of being with wine, being with people who were drinking wine, tasting wine myself. Uh, but I guess that the first real pivotal moment of tasting a truly great wine was when I was about uh, 16. And by that stage, I'd already decided I wanted to be a winemaker. But a friend of dad's brought around a bottle of 1962 Chateau de Kim. And ah. I had never anything remotely like that. You're actually and, not uh, the first guest whose um, their first experience was uh, Chateau de Kim as a, I think it was, yeah, quite recent, Joe Hollyman from Tasmania right. as, as a young fella tried Ikem and was seduced by it. Yeah, you kind of go, this is amazing. And, you know, if I really try hard, I can still taste it um, and, and the ice cream that it went with. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, one of those pivotal moments of experiencing a taste sensation like nothing else. And there have been others since then, uh, most of them involving Burgundy. No doubt, no doubt. Um, uh, but you said that at that age, at 16, I think you said you already knew that you wanted to be a winemaker. You already knew that you were going to continue the family business, as it were. Yeah, I, I knew by the time I was about 12 that that's the path I, I wanted to take. And it made choices at high school quite easy in terms of subjects. So I, I took chemistry and physics and biology and French was very useful later on. So, I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, then I, having graduated from high school, I, I took a, a year just to attend Auckland University just to do a bit of science and, and stay home for a bit because um, in those days going away to learn enology meant travelling to Australia. So I, I had a year at Auckland Uni before I went across to Roseworthy College. Is there now a, a tertiary um, university, I guess, or a technical school in New Zealand for studying winemaking? Yes, there are a few, in fact. Oh, um, great. The main ones are Lincoln University in Christchurch. Okay. And the Eastern Institute of Technology in Hawke's Bay. But there are others who do other types of courses and, and there's postgraduate study available at the University of Auckland now too. Did your parents encourage you to, you know, go away and, and study uh, analogy yes. and, and viticulture? Absolutely. In fact, uh, when I was 12, my father and a friend of his who was a microbiologist did a, uh, a tour around the um, viticultural and winemaking regions of South Australia. And on that tour, he visited uh, Roseworthy College and, and was very impressed by the place. And uh, by the uh, head lecturer at the time, uh, Bob Baker, who ended up lecturing me later on, but uh, <laughs> he thought it would be a very a very good place for one of his boys to go, you know, and, and I, me, me being the eldest, um, I, I did end up going there. And uh, But by the time I was there, it was Dr. Bryce Rankin had taken over as head of school. Oh, there you go. Uh, and, and he was an old uh, friend of my father's as well. So the, the connections go back a long way. Um, you're, the, you're the eldest of how many siblings? Uh, there are four of us all together. There's myself and my sister Mariana, my brother Milan, and the youngest brother is Paul. And, and we all work in the business with our mother, Melba. Have they always um, all been part of the family business? Not always. Uh, I was the first to come back. 
uh, Mariana spent quite a bit of time uh, in a sales and marketing role with uh, the Regent Hotel in Auckland um, before she went off to have her family and, and, and now she's back working with us. And Demillan worked in the dairy industry for a little while before coming back here and the winemaker's job was already taken. So uh, <laughs> he ended up um, running the vineyard, but, but he's, a, he's a chemical engineer by training and so any of the engineering needed around the place he, he's very uh, much a part of that very handy and, to have oh absolutely paul spent a bit of time working in the trade in, in england when he was uh, young just out of uh, university he did marketing at university and then he came back straight into the business and he's been with us ever since right okay so it was your grandparents who moved out from from Europe, and now you'll have to forgive. I hope, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Brajkovic. 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 Okay, uh, and I believe from Croatia. Yes. So they came from the Dalmatian coast of Croatia. So it's a it's a province, if you like, um, on the Adriatic Sea, and uh, quite a well known area for growing growing grapes and wine. Uh, back for many hundreds of years. Um, but uh, when my grandfather first came to New Zealand, it was 1902, he was a, a teenager, and like many young men of his generation from that part of the world, they they came out looking for a new life because things were pretty tough in that part of the world. They were then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm. part of a, a fairly neglected part of that empire, and there was no no economic activity really. They they did make wine for a while uh, and export it to countries like France and uh, and Italy and but um, various trade agreements and sanctions and that saw that that path of export dry up essentially and and uh, there wasn't a lot of other economic activity for young people to get involved with apart from being conscripted into the Austrian army. So many of the, the young men left before conscription age, which was uh, 16 in those days. Wow. And, I mean, we're talking just before World War One as well. That's right. Yeah. So he came out that time. He stayed out here right the way through World War One, um, And then with some money in his pocket, he went back to Croatia, or Yugoslavia as it was then and uh, got married, started a family, and uh, then things got really quite bad in the 1930s with the Great Depression, and he decided to come back out to New Zealand as a much older man and go back on the cowrie gum fields right. up north and, uh, and dig cowrie gum, and then he brought the rest of the family out, which was my, my grandmother. My father was the eldest of three children and his two uh, sisters as well. So um, they they came out here, worked on the gum fields, but realised there was no future in that. So they they felt they needed to get onto the land somewhere, and, and eventually they migrated south and ended up in Auckland, in West Auckland, working for other Dalmatian families in the in the Henderson area, and they saved a bit of money, and uh, eventually in 1944 bought the property where we still are now. Right. So, so as far as um, why New Zealand, um, I mean, was it because there was a, a reasonable amount of migration from Croatia and particularly um, from the, uh, the Dalmatian, Dalmatian part of Croatia 
uh, that's sort of why they chose New Zealand and, and why they chose those particular parts? Yes, there was already a few people here. You know, it's one of those old stories. Somebody goes years before, starts to send a bit of money back, word gets around, and then all of a sudden there's a bit of a rush. Right. And there were thousands of young men came out on ships because the work was available. Uh, they were hardworking. They, they dug over the old Cowrie swamps up far north um, that the, the early English settlers had dug over earlier, but they, they dug it deeper. And uh, there was a lot of um, consternation and kind of prejudice against them because the uh, locals thought they worked far too hard. <laughs> um, then when World War I came along, because they were technically members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they, they were arrested and uh, jailed as, as enemy aliens. And many of them, including my grandfather, ended up on work gangs, working on the roads and digging drains and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, my step-grandfather, who was Italian, he, he came out to Australia at the age of 14. Uh, he, uh, during the Second World War, had the same thing, was um, interned and worked on the border between Victoria and New South Wales, you know, transferring stuff from train to train because they had different tracks back then. So, yeah, it must be a pretty uh, difficult position to be in, uh, you know. I guess you have some small community, um, but you are all ostracised because of where you happen to have come from. That's right. We, and we had nothing to do with the Austrians really because uh – you know, the Dalmatian coast was, was very much um, part of the greater, I guess, Italian uh, community. It has much more in common with with Italy than it does with, with the hinterland. So correct me if I'm wrong, but was this part of what was historically known as Istria? Istria is, is further north. Right, okay. So, didn't, so it, is, it didn't extend that far down, okay. Istria is, is still part of Dalmatia. Um, or no, it's not really part of Dalmatia. It's part of Croatia. Yep. But it's um, it is a part uh, that has kind of changed f- from being Italian to being Yugoslav and back again because it's right there by Trieste. It's mm-hmm. just the, the so. Eastern. This is the, the Carso area. I uh, don't know that name. Yeah. Okay. It's um, it's it, it, it is certainly a part right down to a town that the Croatians call Rijeka which is also known as Italian as Fiume, and both words mean river. Right, yeah. Uh, and uh, the locals there still, many of them speak Italian. And during that time between the wars, there was a lot of um, Italian was just about going to become the official language, but they still kept uh, the local language going close. And a few, um, Lydia Bastianich, who's a TV chef, and um, entrepreneur in the United States. Her family's from, from Istra, and um, they they are essentially Italian, but they have a Croatian surname. Mm. They speak Italian at home and all that kind of stuff. It's a, so it's a it's a real mixing pot that that particular part. I have spent. I've been very very lucky to spend quite a bit of time there. It's probably one of my favourite parts of Italy. Uh, so interesting, you know. But obviously, um, one of the poorer parts, and the borders have changed so many times throughout history, just in the last hundred years or so. Um, and and, and, and on that they topic, grow good truffles too. Sorry. Apparently, they grow good truffles too. Oh. I mean, everyone talks about Piemonte for, for truffles, don't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on that sort of topic. Um, 
does does Croatia and particularly that part of Croatia share a similar sort of winemaking tradition as you know Georgia and and Slovenia as far as um, skin contact and working in clay jars and stuff like that? I've never seen clay jars myself, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if they did have them somewhere. Um, most people use wooden containers. Okay. You know, so, so they call them butchva or barrels, and um, and there's some concrete. Um, more recently, you see stainless steel tanks and things like that. But the coastal area is, is still well-known for its wines, particularly red wines, but also white. Um, they have the Plavats Mali uh, is the predominant red grape variety there, which is pretty much a native of, of Dalmatia. And uh, some very f- famous appellations, uh, such as Dingarch. In fact, uh, Mike Gergich from California moved into that area specifically to grow that variety very close to the Dingarch region. Oh, but on the islands yeah. of Khvar and Korchula, they, they make some very good white wine from a variety called Poship, which I think is um, one of the stars of that particular region. Mm-hmm. And so your your family back in Croatia, they were they had some involvement with growing grapes and yes, making some they, wine? They all had little plots of vines in the hills and around the village and uh, they would tend those and, and make the wine. And just like a lot of parts of Italy as well, uh, wine as part of the diet was, was very important and it was one of those things that you could make at one time of the year, put it away, and it lasted the rest of the year and as such was a very important source of calories for many of them. So working men in the fields would always take out wine with them and, and drink it during the day. Um, more for sustenance than anything else. Fortification. Fortification, exactly. <laughs> right, okay. And as far as when they were looking at um, growing grapes and making wine in New Zealand, in you know, in west of Auckland, did they kind of think about that, you know, how they worked back in Croatia? Well, the environment here is just totally different and what, what amazed them when they came here was that it was a lot more fertile, a lot wetter, you know, higher rainfall, uh, which meant that just about anything grew better. So uh, growing vegetables, trees, fruit trees, that type of thing, strawberries or whatever, they, they could grow anything they wanted to, but there was more disease pressure. Uh, when it came to growing grapes, many of them uh, planted the more ubiquitous at the time hybrid grape varieties because they they gave a good yield, a good colour, and didn't rot. So they didn't need as much attention when it came to spraying and things like that. And because of that, the quality of the wine back in those days wasn't particularly good until uh, growers realised that we needed to concentrate more on the classical Vitis vinifera varieties from Europe, make sure the yields were lower and start to pick varieties that suited our climate, not necessarily a much warmer climate that they were used to. Mm. So when they uh, were able to to finally uh, purchase land and, and plant a vineyard, I'm assuming this is, what, 1944? 1944, they, they purchased land that already had a small vineyard. Oh, Okay but it had um, a variety called Albany Surprise, 
which was more of an eating grape, and it came from New York State. It was one of those. Albany, uh, yeah. And um, it had very thick skins and a lot of the the foxy character from those Labrusca varieties. So it was Vitus Labrusca and um, it didn't make particularly good wine, but it made wine. And, and the, um, the people they bought it from were also from the same village in Croatia and they'd been here 25 years, but they had a small vineyard and a winemaker's license and that was part of the attraction of the property was to actually purchase some land where they could start making wine straight away. Did they buy the land just um, to, to grow grapes and make wine or did they plant some uh, other crops as well? The main activity was, in fact, dairy farming. So they, they had uh, 20, 30 cows and uh, they milked those. They used to sell the cream, uh, use the skim milk for feeding the pigs that they kept as well. And they had a bit of an orchard and they grew pumpkins and they grew strawberries. So right. it was a real mixed farm. But the, um, the vineyard gradually overtook the cow paddocks and uh, eventually it was wine that, that became the major activity and, and they, they got rid of the cows completely. Right, okay. Um, now, the the location of the of the property of the vineyard, uh, it, w- it wasn't chosen because it was you know oh it's a, it's an amazing place. It was more just that was what was available. There was already a, a vineyard, um, and it's what they could afford. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, in those days, Kumiu was way out in the country. They couldn't afford to buy land in Henderson. It was too expensive. So they they lived on a vineyard in Henderson and worked on several properties there. My, my grandfather and my father worked. My two aunties were going to school at the time. And um, so they saved up some money. That, uh, they, they lived off my grandfather's and grandmother's wages and my father's wages. They, they banked until they had 200 pounds. And that was enough to put a down payment on the property that we still have in Kumu. Hmm. So um, back then there probably wasn't much wine being produced in New Zealand uh, and it was sort of the evolution of uh, a a burgeoning wine industry in New Zealand and then I guess, you know, a market for New Zealand wines that kind of led the family towards looking at making more premium quality wines. Am I right? Yeah, that was a, a very slow evolution through the 50s, 60s, 70s. 50s and 60s, still very much a fortified wine producing company, even though our conditions here don't make very good fortified wine. The New Zealand wine industry was heavily protected by income tariff, or at least import tariffs. So you could make anything and sell it. And um, and we did. We, we made a lot of sherry and port style wines. But my father was always very keen on making red table wines, uh, predominantly from hybrid grapes, but he made a very passable dry red table wine that was sold mostly in, in half-gallon jars. Uh, then he, he planted Pinot Chardonnay, as it was known in those days, in 1965. So he was always always had an eye to the, the future and to what we should be doing in terms of quality wine, but uh, didn't really have the training to be able to do that. He had a lot of help from, from other people in the industry. But that's why he was very keen on some of us as kids to go through and get an education. Uh, the, the Chardonnay that he planted in the mid-60s wasn't a particularly good clone. It didn't ripen very well. 
but at, at about the same time, people were planting quite a bit of a variety that we used to call Riesling Silvana, but was more correctly known as Muller Turgau. Mm. It quickly became the most widely grown variety in New Zealand, and it was very successful in producing um, medium sweet or medium dried white table wines uh, that people just loved. And uh, it, Were they sort of similar to like the German Liebfraumilch? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like Blue Nun. In fact, many of it, most of it, even better than a few of those. <laughs> I don't doubt it. It, it. it did ripen quite early. It gave good crops. It was quite a low acid variety. And um, particularly in the Gisborne area on the East Coast, it did very well. Mm-hmm. We grew it here in Kumu also. But our, our best Muller always came from Gisborne. But it was very important in changing people's tastes in New Zealand away from the traditional beer and fortified wines towards table wines because they they could drink that um, as an aperitif without food necessarily. But it led them into other varieties later on, particularly Chardonnay and uh, Sauvignon Blanc and then in, in reds it was Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir came later. So there was a real evolution through the late late. 70s into the 80s and then, then right through till now. Right. So when were the first Chardonnay vines planted? Um, apart from those ones in the mid-60s that didn't really work, we started in 1982 planting um, some decent clones of Chardonnay and trying to find some decent rootstocks. It wasn't until uh, 1990, though, uh, and that's really Dad's last project because he died in 92, that we're able to get hold of some some better rootstocks. Now, in this area, we've had phylloxera for, for years and years and years, so we, we always had to uh, graft our grapevines and, and grow them on rootstocks. But the rootstocks that were originally available were chosen more for their ease of grafting and their vigour than their quality. So mm. most of them, like 1202, SO4, 5BB, were all far too vigorous. So it wasn't until we got some good low vigor rootstocks from France that um, that we were able to plant some good vineyards. And the four rootstocks that we got were 420A, Riparia Gloire, 101.14, and 3.309. And those those four really still provide the bulk of our our what our grapevine rootstocks, and they do a really good job here. Mm. So um, up until the, in the mid-80s was sort of the really important part um, for changing the focus of the business and I believe that was sort of when you changed the name to Kumo River. Um, right. What was it that actually led the family to, to change the nature of the business? Um, I guess a lot of it had to do with my time in Australia because I was at Roseworthy 1979, 1980, 1981, and our company was known as San Marino Vineyards, and that, that's a throwback to the, the Croatian coast where um, the chap San Marino was Saint Marinus the Dalmatian, and he was a, a monk who was being pursued by the Ottomans, and they chased him out of Dalmatia. He, in fact, rode across the Adriatic sea to to Italy and he went and, and hid in the mountains uh, just opposite where where we come from and uh, 
he founded his republic there, which is still there. It's called mm. San Marino. Mm. So our, the first name of our winery was um, San Marino, and I guess we're, we're other Dalmatians who fled. But um, as a name, it's not really evocative of New Zealand. It's, it's a more international name. Uh, and certainly when you went to Australia and saw the wines coming out of the Riverland with very similar names, um, it, uh, it wasn't encouraging to keep it. So when I came home, I thought, said to Dad, look, we, we need to have something that's much more local. And uh, Kumia was the obvious choice. Uh, but the fact that the winery stands on the banks of, of a little creek, which is called the Kumia River, um, led us to call it Kumia River. And we changed the company name in 1986. But the first uh, vintage of wine that was actually labelled under the Kumia River label was uh, 1983 Merlot. And that, that was a wine that we produced from a, a vineyard that we purchased and just before... Um, vintage in 1983 and, and the big attraction for that vineyard was the fact that it had Merlot on it and there was very little Merlot in New Zealand so it was quite an attraction to, to get our hands on it and later on that same year I had the opportunity to go to Bordeaux and work for Jean-Pierre Moix who's a, a big negotiant in Libourne but their most famous property is a place called uh, Chateau Petrus, you may have heard of it Maybe <laughs> so there was a market for the Bordeaux variety based wines already? There was. There was a lot of interest early on, particularly in the mid-70s and into the early 80s with Cabernet Sauvignon. There wasn't so much Merlot planted. But Cabernet uh, didn't really ripen that well on a regular basis, certainly in this area. Uh, it was always quite, uh, quite greenish, quite peppery. Um, Merlot was much more forgiving, so so even in a cool vintage, you could still make something with a bit more savoury character than than just herbal or herbaceous character. Mm. So it was a very successful blending element. We also uh, planted Cabernet Franc at the same time, and it it was less successful, mostly because it it had leaf roll virus in it that really debilitates the vine, so so it doesn't ripen properly, but. We did start making a very passable uh, Loire red style, you know, in the style of Chinon or Bourgogne. And, and it's a real shame that, that we don't have that vineyard anymore because I think that that style of red wine is is much underappreciated and can do very well in a market like ours. Mm. So as far as yourself, Michael, was coming to, to study winemaking and viticulture uh, at Roseworthy in Australia – was that sort of your first uh, experience overseas and the first yes. opportunity to, to sort of travel and see other parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just before uh, I went over, we, we did a family trip to Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, went and had a look at Roseworthy, travelled to the Barossa, went to McLaren Vale, and uh, so had a bit of an inkling of, of what what the land looked like, what the what it felt like, and and then I came back the following year as a student. Mm. And um, yeah, it was it was the best thing I ever did. It was a fantastic experience. Can you and can you tell me some of the people you studied with back then? Um, well, on my first day at Roseworthy, arrived at the airport and actually shared a ride with Andrew Spinnersy from who's now at Tyrrells, of course. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, so so he was there at the same time. In my year, uh, we have people like um, Rolf Binder in the Barossa, mm-hmm. Jane, Jane Ferrari, who's wow. at uh, Yolumba, uh, Nick Walker from O'Leary Walker, yeah. Dave O'Leary was there at the same time, Peter Barry from Clare, um, Rob Gibson, who's also in the Barossa, uh, Martin Shaw from Shaw and Smith. Yep. Um, Some pretty important names as far as Australian wine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Chris what, Ringland. A very important well. name. Another New Zealander. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, no, some, some very, very good people. Okay. And a good mate of mine, Steve Hall, who uh, worked at Coriolis for quite a while and also uh, Stanley Leasingham. Uh-huh. And either side of us too, you know, um, guys who are in classes ahead of us, like Mike DeGarris. Uh, Kim Milne, um, and behind us, yeah, there's quite quite a few people f- from that era have gone on to make quite a big mark in the Australian and New Zealand wine industries. Well, I, I would imagine that was probably you know quite a golden era as far as you know it was really starting to take off as far as studying winemaking and then going off and working for fairly established. Um, winemaking families and businesses and to then eventually go on and st- establish your own businesses. Um, as far as the wines you were tasting and looking at at the time, did you find quite a lot of inspiration as, as far as how you might be able to uh, improve quality back at home? Yes. It was a, a fantastic opportunity, not just tasting wines in the classroom situation, but I was in a group of people really led by Steve Hall who um, spent uh, a large chunk of the small money that we did have um, on wine and mm. we tasted all sorts of wine from all over the place, but principally French wine, I guess, Burgundy and Bordeaux, which in those days, mercifully, even though it was it was expensive, it wasn't prohibitive as it is now. So. The kind of opportunities we had of tasting the great wines of the world uh, was much greater back then than it is now. Certainly the taxes wouldn't have been anywhere near as bad as they are now. Uh, Tax was always an issue, Uh, not quite the same amount because things went up considerably after Keating put put them all up. But, um, you know, it was just, it was a time when fine wine was underappreciated everywhere. Mm. And uh, you could buy you know, fantastic Bordeaux and uh, Burgundy for 20 or $30 a bottle when, you know, a, a really good bottle of Australian wine, for example, was $10. Mm. Ah, no, I'm wrong there. Grange is still considerably more than $12. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's all relative. I, I forget the exact numbers. But I, I, I do remember looking back through a diary years ago and seeing the kind of dollars we were paying for for the kind of wines we were drinking then and it's it's just next to nothing Mm, absolutely Uh, at what point did you establish a a real love affair with the wines of burgundy then yeah i can remember that very clearly um because there was quite a bit of 75 76 around um uh, so yeah they, they were good vintages and um Later on, I got to try a few 71s, which are you know, still legendary. 
but but it was a good time to be able to get an introduction to those both both red and white burgundies. So um, that that was an interesting experience. But I think most of the wines that we were trying were Bordeaux. Right. Uh, that, that, that was a real focus. There was a lot of interest in claret. Uh, you could quite easily get it. The the interest in Burgundy wasn't quite there just yet, but there were still good examples around. Hmm. And was it sort of being introduced to some of those European wines that uh, inspired you to kind of change the direction for the family business and, you know, as far as Cumia River uh, and take that into that quality uh, sort of area? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I can remember, you know, that the house that we had at Roseworthy College in, in year two and year three, I shared that house with Peter Barry and Chris Ringland and we, we had lots of visitors from other parts of our class and um, the discussions revolved around, you know, things like that. You know, what, what would you do? How would you do it? What would you grow? What kind of yields would you be looking for? How would you make it? How would you ferment it? All that kind of stuff we talked about. And it was really good mm. getting a perspective, particularly from somebody like Pete, who was from the wine business already. They had a winery. He knew the ins and outs of a winery, um, you know, to get a practical viewpoint. And then somebody like Chris, who was very well read and, uh, you know, had learned about all sorts of things, particularly from a French perspective. And you just discuss these things. I mean, one of the things that we talked about, I can remember quite clearly, was the barrel fermentation of Chardonnay. And no one thought that, you know, anybody would, would barrel ferment white wine. Why, why would you do that? Because the, the current practice in Australia and New Zealand was to ferment white wine in a stainless steel tank under controlled temperature conditions using a, a decent yeast. And then you put it into barrels, if you could afford them, uh, to give it a bit of oak. And uh, even when we raised the question with our lecturers, they, they all said, no, no, you don't do that. You don't ferment. But clearly, um, that's what they were doing in Burgundy for years. Mm. You, you press the grapes. You don't crush them. You press the juice out, and then the juice goes into a barrel, and you ferment in the barrel. And it, it changes the whole dynamic about how the wine evolves and, and becomes wine. It's much more protective of the wine. Um, it gives you contact with the yeast, which is very important, and all those things. So, so all those ideas were becoming formulated at that time. And uh, over the next 10 years, we were able to put many of those ideas into practice. When did you uh, get your first opportunity to travel to Europe and, and visit some of these regions? 1983, um, so just after we'd bought the vineyard with all the Merlot on it, and uh, I, I got the chance to get a, a stage at uh, Jean-Pierre Moix through mm. a, a friend of my father's who, who was the agent for them in New Zealand. And um, that was just a absolutely pivotal experience. I um, had learned a bit of French, but, you know, really got dropped into the deep end and had to swim or sink. Um, so... Having a bit of French language really helped at that time, and I just soaked it up, soaked up the whole atmosphere and, and the winemaking culture, but it was Bordeaux, not Burgundy. But I did get the chance on that trip to 
to travel to Burgundy and Champagne and Alsace and visit some really good places and pick up a few ideas there. And I've, I've still got my notebooks from that time when I was writing down ideas of what, of what we could do at home, how we could you know, look at the same type of things that they were doing in France and, uh, and make some changes, make some improvements. Hmm. And I got home, I was able to start on that with, with the viticultural perspective you know, and help choose grape varieties, clones and rootstocks, and then trellising systems as well. To, to actually make a difference here because when I came home I thought hell oh, we're going to have to move we're going to have to get some grapes in, in Gisborne or Hawke's Bay or Marlborough or wherever but dad said look you've, you've got all this education now you've got some ideas why don't we put them into practice here and see what we can do here Yeah, that's exactly what we did and it worked so, I mean, even at this time, those regions that you mentioned, they were starting to take off and they sort of haven't really slowed down a lot since no. then. Um, do you find it, have you found it difficult to sort of communicate the, the Kimu story, uh, particularly overseas, with with such strong brand identities around Marlborough and Otago Um um, there's much wine being produced in that area of New Zealand? There's not, and it's always been a difficult area in which to grow grapes because of our heavy clay soils and our rainfall and humidity. But I think over the time we've been doing it, it's over 30 years now, we've, we've proven that it's actually a really good place to grow Chardonnay in particular. But there's still this perception around that it's no good. Mm. You know, you know, we just get very frustrated by those kind of remarks and say, well, you know, just taste the wine in the glass and it's pretty obvious it's a good area. Or you get comments like, gee, they're, they're really good winemakers if they can make that kind of stuff in Auckland. Imagine if they had a vineyard somewhere else. Um, it's just not right. Um, the, the area here is very well suited to Chardonnay. And, um, and I think we've shown that. The difficulty we have now is that we can't expand because the urbanisation pressure of an expanding Auckland means that the land prices are just ridiculous. And even further north of here, it's still quite expensive to do. So our only hope for uh, continuing some kind of expansion is to get vineyard land or purchase grapes elsewhere. And we, we've already started doing that. So we've... Um, Last year, we, or two years ago, we started purchasing Chardonnay in Hawke's Bay and we've, we've just purchased a vineyard down there as well. So Chardonnay has been the variety that is so closely associated with Kimio River um, and you are considered to be one of, if not the best producer of Chardonnay in New Zealand. Admittedly, you know, a, New Z uh, a country that um, very much has an identity around Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir. Um, how have you kind of evolved the Chardonnay uh, over the years? And, and, and to, to what, what do you think, apart from where you are, is it that makes Kumeo River Chardonnay so well regarded, um, you know, by sommeliers and, and wine critics around the world? Um. First of all, it is the viticulture, so it's the variety itself, uh, which I think is, bar none, the best dry white grape variety in the world for a whole lot of reasons. 
Um, for us, it's advantageous because it does ripen early. So our climate is, is well adapted to that. Um, even though we're a long way north in New Zealand, we're not any warmer than anywhere else because of the proximity of the ocean. So um, our maximum temperatures during the growing season are in fact less than places like Hawke's Bay or even Marlborough, certainly central Otago. So we we are still very much cool climate. So a good cool, cool climate variety like Chardonnay is going to do well here. Then there's the the technical side of, of actually making the wine. And it, it really starts with hand harvesting. I mean, we we just wouldn't have a bar of mechanically harvesting our grapes. Um, so we hand harvest everything so that the fruit arrives at the winery in pretty good condition. Then it's whole bunch press. That's another technique that, that we, you know, so we left behind the crusher, um, whole bunch press to get the best quality juice out then put that juice either into a tank or into a barrel and allow the fermentation to go through using indigenous yeasts. And that, that's been an ongoing pr a project ever since I came back from France. We, we started with red wines and then two years later um, went into white wines with, with indigenous yeast fermentations and we've been doing it ever since. And then there's keeping the wine on the yeast leaves for a long time, encouraging the malolactic fermentation because... It is a cool climate and we have quite high acid. The best way of reducing that acid to a more palatable level is to put the wine through a malolactic fermentation. And, of course, when we started doing that, we, we introduced the buttery character, which became so popular, particularly in Australia and California, which are both much warmer climates. We don't really need to have deacidification, but a bit of butter really helped a lot of those wines, which were a bit lacking in fruit flavour. So it became a popular technique. And then other things like just extended time on leaves, which in fact reduces the buttery character. All of these technical things um, made, made the wine better. And uh, we've been changing those incrementally, you know, small increments, over 30 years. So you learn from each vintage and you are determined to make an improvement each year. And I think the wines have improved each year. So... From the early days of the 80s when they came on the market and they're quite different from everybody else's and, and made an impact that way, I think now they make an impact because they are, um, in, in, in many cases, clearly better. Mm. Now, um, Michael, you've been uh, very involved with uh, judging at wine shows for many years. In fact, I think you're the chairman or, or the chair of judges at the Adelaide Wine Show. Um, That's right. When, did you first get introduced in, to show judging when you were studying at Roseworthy? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it was part of the course, part of uh, sensory evaluation was to learn about the Australian wine show judging system and systems. It was great to have Dr. Bryce Rankin, who was uh, at one time chair of the Adelaide Wine Show, uh, teaching us about that. And then as third-year students, you had the opportunity to go to Adelaide and uh, actually um, act as a pourer at the Adelaide Wine Show and, and that was an eye-opener so I got to do that in 1981 and I remember being a pourer for a panel that had uh, the likes of Brian Crozer and uh, Peter Lehman on it and Len Evans was there and Bill Chambers was there you know it was just all these great names and, and just to watch what they were doing just see how um, strong these 
these personalities were as well. I mean, it was quite quite fascinating. Mm. Um, then when I came back to New Zealand, um, because I had done well at Roseworthy, I I became an associate judge quite early on uh, in my career and got a chance to judge at the what was then the National Wine Competition, which went on to become the New Zealand Wine Awards. In those days, they had two two panels of uh, judges. The chairman was John Buck, and um, I learned a bit from that. And then a few years later, I was a senior judge, and and I've I've done a lot of senior judging here on and off over the years, but probably more in Australia actually. So I've judged at a number of shows there: uh, Royal Hobart, Canberra, uh, Perth, and also at Adelaide. Mm. And has it been really exciting to sort of over the years see how uh, wine shows and, you know, the wine production has evolved? Has it been exciting to see wines getting better as time has moved forward? Absolutely. And it's been a, you know, a great privilege to be part of it. And I was uh, delighted um, to be asked to come and judge in Adelaide. This was in 2000. And uh, I had judged with Brian Walsh, who was then chief winemaker for your lumber, and he he was on the committee of the Adelaide Wine Show, so I got an invitation to come and judge there, and um, I mean that that was just fantastic thrill having been a student in South Australia and come back, and I I, I know a lot of people there and still do, and and uh, then to keep it keep getting asked back, and uh, then a few years ago they had asked me to chair it, which was just a huge thrill. And uh, just to see the evolution of styles um, uh, and the improvement, I mean, Australian wine has never been better. I can say that quite quite confidently. Um, it's just amazing how, how good things have become and, and they continue to evolve and change and, and get better. Uh, and, but, but at Adelaide, we are determined to also recognise and reward the old styles because... At many of the sh- the show judge dinners, a lot of the old wines pulled out. You know, wines from the early '60s, the '70s, and you know, these beautiful old wines that are, sh- are showing great age. And yet, in some show circles, that kind of wine, as a young wine, gets knocked back these days as being too big, too too black, too ripe. Um, but these are so important in the whole history of Australian wine. They they're still around and they, st- they are still good. And, uh, but there's room for other styles as well. And I think uh, we, we do recognise styles and regional differences from all over Australia, which is great. And, I mean, it's the same thing in the New Zealand show too. I'm, I've just completed my five-year stint as chair of judges at the uh, Air New Zealand Wine Awards. And the, the same thing's happening there too, but with different varieties and different regional styles it's it's very exciting and it just continues to get better Mm. so can you tell me um what was it that actually uh, inspired you to um head towards the path of becoming the first uh, master of wine from new zealand and and can you tell me a little bit about that journey yes that was a very interesting time um i mean through roseworthy we had heard about this Place, the Institute of Masters of Wine and these uh, pretty amazing tasters who could you know, taste a wine and tell you not only the region it came from, what side of the road it came from and who produced it and all that kind of stuff. 
it was pretty awe-inspiring and uh, uh, very interesting. Um, but um, I never really thought much more about it until uh, 1986 when uh, I got to be a senior judge at the National Wine Competition, which was being held at the uh, Chateau Tongariro. And our guest overseas judge that year was uh, Sarah Morphew, who was the first woman to pass the MW exam back in the early 70s. And um, I, I, I was tasting on a panel with her and she took me aside at the end of the day and said, you know, you've got pretty good tasting ability. Have you ever thought of doing the Master of Wine exam? And I, I kind of looked at her and said, oh, well, no, of course not. I couldn't do that. Uh, you know, I couldn't spend that amount of time in the UK. And she said, look, um, things are going to change with the MW exam and that we're, we're looking – and she, she was the current chair of, of the institute. Uh, we're actually looking at um, doing um, or making it much more international, so taking away the requirement to, to live and work in the UK and to make it much more accessible. Um, I said, well, that sounds interesting, but uh, I did nothing more about it until – um, the following year, it was 1988, and Michael Hillsmith, who had moved to London specifically to do the uh, the course and the exams, uh, he he passed the MW exam, and that was he was the first non-British MW. And when that happened, I got a phone call from Sarah Morphew and saying, "Look, here you go. Here's Michael Hillsmith's gone over and done this. You can do it." So she, she basically bullied me into taking the exam. And so I, I set to and uh, wrote the essay that got me into the program. But in those days, there was no such thing as a set. Um, you know, first year, second year, anything like that. All you have to do was write an exam, get accepted, become part of the course. But because I was living in New Zealand, I couldn't travel to lectures or do anything like that. And then I just showed up in, in May 1989 in London and set the exam and passed it. Wow. How long, how long did it take you to, to prepare to study for the exam itself? About a year. Wow. So I was very fortunate in that I wasn't that long out of college, so uh, essay writing, exams, all that kind of stuff wasn't too bad. Um, where I lacked was was the the international tasting experience, and I um, I got in cahoots with um, Bob Campbell, um, who subsequently became the next master of wine from New Zealand, and also Sam Weaver, who was then working for Hancock's Wines and Spirits, and Sam had actually passed the tasting part of the exam, but not the theory, uh, when he was living in London, and. Uh, he actually set tastings up for us and asked us MW-style tasting questions. So, so Bob and I would, would arrive and go through an exam and then Sam would tell us afterwards how much the wine cost. So we, we didn't have any biased ideas. And that, that was great. That was a really good experience. But I also had the chance to travel to England and travel around France and taste a bit as well before, just before the exam. Uh, I did a tour around France with a, uh, a guy who was a bit of a mentor for me, uh, Kit Stevens, who was also a master of wine. 
and uh, did a great job of showing me the French regions and styles, and I learned a lot from Kit. So um, being able to do it the first time around meant, um, you know, saved me a lot of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And expense. Yes, and expense. Uh, But uh, I almost regretted it because I didn't have an excuse to go back to France. Yeah, Mm. fair enough. Um, And uh, how many uh, MWs are there uh, from New Zealand now? Currently there's 10 of us, uh, but if you count Matthew Della, who's now in, in California, he's another Kiwi. Kim Milne is an Australian, but he spent a lot of time in New Zealand. And we kind of count him as one of ours as well. Margaret Harvey is a New Zealander who lives in London. Uh, Peter McCombie as well. Uh, so there's a few of us around. Yeah. And have you enjoyed being part of the Institute as far yes, as absolutely. fostering more education and more NWs? I feel a bit guilty that I haven't really done enough of it. Um, and I guess part of that's because I've been involved so much in the wine shows recently, but that will that will tone down and uh, I'll get back involved occasionally with, with the educational side of, of the Institute because we, we do have a, a seminar every year. Yeah. And um, yeah, I haven't done one for a couple of years now, but I, but I have been involved in the past in marketing exams and things like that. So that, that's been a good, a good opportunity to give back. And, and speaking of, you know, fostering, um, you know, further development, education, as far as the next generation of uh, Brakovic's, um, yep. are there already um, some, some of the kids involved, uh, looking to get involved in the business? No, not yet. Uh, we, we have, um, well, my mother has nine grandchildren, six boys and three girls. Uh, the eldest is 23. He's graduating as a doctor at the end of the year, and the youngest is my boy, who's 13. Um, out of those nine, hopefully we'll get somebody. But, uh, at the moment, we don't have anyone. Um, but, you know, time time can change things. To, uh, you know, often it takes a little while for people to realise what a good job it is. Yeah. And, um, and that, that it's, a great, it's a great life. Uh, so, so hopefully that, that will happen. But uh, we keep saying amongst ourselves, you know, me, me and my siblings, um, we're still young. You know, we've got a, a lot left in us, so, so we'll keep going. You're not going to be handing over time, anytime soon? No. But, um, I mean, it sounds like there uh, are some interesting developments for the business uh, in the future that uh, hopefully will you know, draw them in and get, want to get involved. But, uh, look, um, yeah. it has been really fascinating and fantastic to chat with you, uh, Michael, uh, and hear more about the family history and your uh, involvement in the Institute and obviously with wine shows as well. So thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, James. Um, and as far as uh, people following uh, yourself and also uh, Community River, um, would you mind sharing website addresses and social media accounts for the listeners, please? It's just kumiriver, all one word, .co.nz. That's a website and that, that's the best contact. Um, I, I do occasionally show up on Twitter, but I can't even remember my handle. I'm not, I'm not all this social media savvy like you guys <laughs> it is actually on the website it's uh Brykovich oh, mj that's it yeah but thank you very much again and uh yeah hope to to meet you in person soon okay thanks james
And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and I would love for you to follow me on social media, uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and on Twitter, you can follow the podcast at The Vincast. Uh, you can find my Facebook page, Intrepid Wino, one word. Hit that like button and check out some of the uh, links and photos that I share on there. Uh, and come and visit me on YouTube, also Intrepid Wino, one word, uh, and have a look at some of the videos that I've posted, including my series called Let's Taste. Uh, make sure you like and comment on some videos and subscribe so you can get the new video as soon as it becomes available. Uh, I'd love for you also to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes uh, or any other uh, form of podcast sharing app or program uh, like Podbean, Player FM, Stitcher. Subscribing means uh, you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available and it's also a great way to share your appreciation by leaving a five-star rating and a review. Uh, All that information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com and you can find ways to get in contact with me there. But uh, until next time, bye. Bye.